It's September 10, 2001. Joel Magallan is having a day like any other, running errands, making phone calls, and organizing paperwork. He is the director of Asociación Tepeyac, a nonprofit organization that fights for immigrant rights. He's got a lot to do, because he, alongside other organizers from across the country, are preparing for this big march that's going to happen in Washington, D.C. in a couple weeks. We organized a national coalition to fight for permanent residence for all immigrants of all nationalities. Joel believes that this march is a huge step toward immigration reform. That's because, just days earlier, President George W. Bush and the Mexican president, Vicente Fox, had a meeting. They're trying to work out a compromise on the issue. We must and can reach an immigration agreement before the end of this year. The United States is proud to stand beside you as your partner and as your friend. Both presidents want to make a path to citizenship for immigrants already in the U.S. Let us build trust along our common border. My mom still remembers how excited and hopeful the immigrant community was back then. A lot of people were already celebrating. She, like many others, believes there's going to be immigration reform. Since it was almost a reality, we were trying to see what we were going to need, papers, etc. Joel and the coalition that he helped organize decide that it's time to take full advantage of all the political momentum. So we had money to travel, stay in hotels, and meet with everyone who was part of the unions, churches, and organizations to explain to them why we needed an immigration reform and why it was important to work together. At one point, he stops to call a friend who was supposed to get married the next day, on September 11th. And after that, we were going to go to the Twin Towers for breakfast. But the friend told him the wedding was off. And so all Joel has to do is continue preparing for the march and going about his usual day-to-day work. And so that next morning, September 11th, Joel arrives earlier than usual to the office. It's primary day in New York, and voters are choosing their nominees for the upcoming mayoral election. Joel's co-workers have gone to volunteer at the polls. So the office is empty. And suddenly everyone started to arrive very early and I say, what happened? What happened? And they tell me, what happened is that a plane crashed into one of the towers and everything was suspended. So they turn on the TV. This just in, you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. CNN Center right now is just beginning to work on this story. Joel and his co-workers raced to the roof of their building. They're a little more than two miles away from the Twin Towers, and they can see the North Tower in flames. And then, as they're on the terrace watching, they see the second plane hit the South Tower, and Joel realizes that America is under attack. And we stayed there, in shock, right? Shock, no. 
everyone stays to watch in terror as the two flaming towers eventually collapse. That's when the other one falls, and we say, this is frightening. Soon, the phones in the office start ringing nonstop. It's people from the Hispanic community trying to find their missing loved ones. They don't know where else to turn. All planning for the march comes to a stop. In a matter of hours, as news of the attack spreads, Joel and his colleagues have a new mission. They turn Asociación Tepeyac into a kind of relief center. They answer calls, write down names of the missing, try to reassure panicked families fearing for their loved ones. By the end of the day, Joel has 900 names on a list of the missing. Many of the people on that list were undocumented immigrants. Some families were calling from Mexico. Tragically, some names never came off that list. Some of the missing died in the towers. But to the authorities, on some level, the many undocumented immigrants on Joel's list had always been missing. Or maybe a better way to put it, they'd always been invisible. For all sorts of reasons, it would be very hard to convince officials that these particular New Yorkers had died in the attacks. We want to know who got to be recognized as a 9-11 victim, who didn't, and what stood in the way. This season of Shoe Leather, we go back in time to the day before everything changed, before we all became accustomed to recording major events on our iPhones, posting our opinions on Twitter, or sharing our fondest memories on the Internet. The year is 2001. The Yankees are headed for another World Series. Jeter hits it into right. Back at the wall. We wear low-rise jeans and tracksuits. The election dominates the headlines. I think we need bold change in this city. And Fashion Week is in full force. Leather, lace, and everything in between, it is all moving down the catwalk at Fashion Week in New York. This is Shoe Leather, Season 3, The Day Before. You're listening to The Disappeared. I'm Maria Rides. And I'm Luke Cregan. Joel Magallan would spend the days, months, and years that followed the terror attacks trying to filter through his list of 900 names, trying to figure out who died that day and who'd survived. In the aftermath of September 11th, there was so much confusion about who'd been in and around the towers when they fell. The numbers that we're working on are in the thousands. The best estimate that we can make, relying on the Port Authority and just every, everyone else that has experience with this, is that there'll be a few, a few thousand people left in each building. The following days didn't bring much more clarity. A week after the attack, the number of missing rose again to nearly 5,100, and major efforts... Eventually, the list of missing people reached as high as 7,000 names. Desperate friends and relatives searched the city, begging reporters for help finding their loved ones. Like when this woman talked to the Associated Press on September 13th. It's like searching for a needle in a haystack at this point. It really is. And I'm just praying that that everything's going to be fine. He's a very strong kid, and he's a very loving person, and, and they didn't... So we're just hoping we'll find him. There were a few reasons for all that uncertainty. Survivors had been taken to hospitals scattered all over the city, making it hard to keep track of who was all right. 
And you've been going everywhere. It's not just been here at the Armory, but tell me where else have you been? Friends going around, going to the hospitals. Um, we've been looking at all the lists on all the different websites. Uh, we've been calling, you know, frantically, constantly to all the different numbers, just hoping and praying that we can find him. Plus, back then, you couldn't just text someone to check in on them. That caused an incredible amount of pain and worry, including for this pair that spoke to the AP on September 12th. She's one of our friends. Um, she worked at a Rotary Center, Taiwan, and we haven't heard no response from her, nothing. Since cell phones weren't that common, people didn't leave the kind of digital signatures they do now. On top of that, fires burning under the rubble destroyed human remains. Only about 60% of official victims have ever been matched to a DNA profile. Here's Mark Desire, an assistant director at the office of the chief medical examiner, explaining why that is to an NBC reporter. Everything that destroys DNA was present at Ground Zero. To make things even more complicated, there were some people whose families last heard from them the day before, or that morning, who you wouldn't immediately suspect were victims of the attack. But when the buildings collapsed and thousands of New Yorkers vanished in an instant, authorities had to consider anyone who was missing, even if they already hadn't been seen for a day or two, a potential victim of the attack. So, Joel had his work cut out for him, trying to narrow down his list of names. There was a lot on the line for the families he was trying to help. Money from aid groups and eventually from a victim compensation fund the federal government set up. Honor from being a victim of this awful act of terror. And closure. Closure from just knowing for sure what happened to your loved one. But there was also a lot of obstacles. Many of the people Joel was trying to help were undocumented immigrants. That made things harder. People were afraid to go to relief workers. Joel and family members struggled immensely to convince the authorities that these undocumented New Yorkers had died in the attacks, that they deserved the same recognition, and their families were owed the same compensation as everyone else. In this episode, we look at the extraordinary complexity of figuring out who died at the World Trade Center that day the steps the authorities took to work out ambiguous cases of people who weren't expected to be in the towers or who went missing in the lead-up to the attacks, and why, for some undocumented victims, recognition never came. We're here after a very long train ride. It's a really sunny day. Trees are starting to bloom. When we realized this was going to be a story about recognition... We decided we'd better go to the memorial at the World Trade Center site to see it for ourselves. There's a lot of people taking pictures in front of it. There are still flowers and U.S. flags all over the place. And yeah, the name of the memorial is um, Reflecting Absence. And the perimeter of it is panels with these names. And then that sound of water is water coursing down from these pools under the panels. There are close to 3,000 names on these panels. Most are for the people who died at Ground Zero on 9-11. There are a few hundred more for the people who died elsewhere in the country that day as a result of the terrorist attacks. And finally, there are a few more, six to be precise, for those who died in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Juan. There he is. Juan Mendes La Fuente. The story of Juan Lafuente is a story about how the victim recognition process was supposed to work, even when there were some tricky elements. Juan lived about an hour and a half from the Trade Center in Poughkeepsie, a city in upstate New York. 
He lived there with his wife, Colette, and their four daughters, and he worked as a vice president at Citibank. His office was on Wall Street, about 10 blocks away from the Trade Center. So far as his family knew, he had no reason to be in the tower since September 11th. So when Juan never showed up at work that day, and then never came home, no one knew what happened to him. His wife filed a missing person report. A detective from Poughkeepsie eventually managed to figure out that Juan had, in fact, been at the World Trade Center that day, and why. But police don't decide whether or not a missing person is dead, and they also don't get to decide who is or isn't a 9-11 victim. That's up to people like James Pagonis. My full name is James, middle initial D for Dean Pagonis. I am the retired surrogate court judge and acting Supreme Court Justice of uh, Dutchess County. Surrogate judges are pretty unique to New York State. There's at least one for each county, and they handle wills, people's inheritances. That's the important thing to remember. They also deal with missing people. They're a bit of a quirk of history, dating back to when we were a British colony. And in New York, the governor would then appoint a judge or a surrogate to help resolve and settle matters of estates, people dying with and without wills. Here's how it works. To proceed with a will, you need a death certificate. Typically, a hospital or funeral home or what have you will pass along the required information to local officials. Then those officials will issue a death certificate. From there, the family can execute the will. But what about when there's no body, no funeral, no autopsy, nothing? And instead, the person is technically only missing, like Juan Lafuente. You have to remember, that was very common with 9-11 victims. DNA analysis has only ever matched about 60% of recognized victims to any remains at ground zero. So without a body, you have to convince a surrogate judge that someone should issue a death certificate. She would say that an application is made by Colette LaFuente, the surviving spouse of Juan LaFuente, to have him officially declared deceased as a result of being exposed to a catastrophe or an act of terror or some other unfortunate circumstance. And because of the complexities of the case, like the fact that Juan didn't work in the towers and didn't have an immediately obvious reason to be at the Trade Center, Judge Pagonis held a hearing. At that hearing, Poughkeepsie police were able to show that Juan had gone to an event at Windows on the World, a restaurant at the top of one of the towers. There was no other conclusion that I could draw other than the fact that Juan took the train on September 11th, went down to the World Trade Center to attend a trade show on the 106th floor of the North Tower, and that, unfortunately, that's where he was on the day the first plane struck the North Tower. He declared Juan legally dead. That was that. The family could take that decision, the judicial determination of death, to the town clerk for a death certificate. And so, by May 2002, less than a year after the attacks... The LaFuente family had secured a judgment that would let them access Juan's will and that would set his name firmly on the official list of 9-11 victims. That meant his name would be read with hundreds of others every year on the anniversary of 9-11, that it eventually be carved into bronze at the memorial, and that his family would be eligible for the government's compensation fund. But it wasn't always that easy and straightforward to prove that a loved one died in the towers. And that brings us to the next person in our story, a doctor named Sneha Ann Philip. On September 10, Sneha had the day off. Her husband, Ron Lieberman, didn't. He left that morning for his job at a hospital in the Bronx. 
He was a doctor, too. I kissed her, I told her I loved her, and I left. Luckily, I left my keys at home. So I went back, and I got to kiss her again. And that was the last time that I saw her. That's Ron on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries in 2002. The last time anyone saw Sneha was on some security footage at a department store about a block from the World Trade Center. When she stepped out of the camera's frame at 7.18 p.m. on the night of September 10, for all intents and purposes, she vanished. She never came home. Now, you should know, there was nothing immediately worrying about Sneha staying out for the night. Here's Mark Bogatin, a lawyer who helped Sneha's husband. They had both in the past had occasion to spend time on their own, nights out, away from the apartment. And it was not unusual for Sneha to spend the night away, not unusual for, for Ron to spend the night away. This time, though, she never came back. That's led to a lot of mystery around what happened to her. If you look her up, you'll see Reddit threads and true crime videos on YouTube. This case is going to center around Sneha Phillips. The confounding mystery. She could have met a killer that night. Was she a victim of foul play? Was she living this double life? Some gone girl shit. Okay. Literally. Mm -hmm. There's so many unknowns. There's also an interesting podcast about her. For my heart media, this is Missing on 9-11. The story of one woman who vanished on the eve of history and my quest to find her. The podcast tries to exhaust every possible version of what could have happened to her after September 10th other than the one that seems obvious, the one her family, private investigators, and the New York Police Department came to believe that she was killed in the terror attack. After that uh, total investigation, police found no evidence that Sneha, no trace that she had been alive after September 11th. Sneha and Ron lived just two blocks away from the World Trade Center. If she was coming home the next morning, she would have probably walked by it or even through it. And Snayhead had mentioned to her mom that she wanted to go check out Windows on the World, that restaurant in the North Tower. And according to Mark and the NYPD's own records, based on all those factors that could have placed her at or near the towers that morning, the police... They concluded that she must have died at the Trade Center. Now, normally from there, her situation would have been treated a lot like Juan La Fuentes. In both cases... Law enforcement decided they must have died in the attacks. And, like with Juan, her remains were never identified. And so the family, not having a body, would have to go through surrogate court and ask for a declaration of death. If there was some doubt about whether she was really dead, they'd have to do a hearing, like Juan's. But there's one major difference. Unlike Juan, Sneha lived in New York City, like most of the potential victims. Because so many of those missing presumed dead lived in the five bureaus, the authorities, Mayor Giuliani, and the court set up a special process to expedite those cases. They entered a special procedure in surrogate's court, uh, which would deal with the issue of the people who went missing on 9-11 as whom no remains were found. And so it was basically one proceeding, a mass proceeding. That meant they were going to go through the cases as quickly as possible. Normally, the process for a missing person could take up to three years. Instead, they'd expedite everything, which could also mean skipping the kind of lengthy hearing Judge Pagonis held for Juan La Fuente up in Dutchess County. And then, a year and a half later, the surrogate court announced it was finished. At the conclusion of the proceeding, the court issued its finding that all the thousands of people it found they were all presumed dead at the Trade Center. 
court said, yes, they went missing. They died at the trade center. The court made this ruling for thousands of people, about 2,400, in fact. With two exceptions, there were two exceptions. Two people who fell, rather, into a, a third category. That third category was for cases that the surrogates decided, quote, do not meet the evidentiary test, but appear to have a ring of truth. A judge wrote that she didn't believe the two cases were frauds, but she also didn't think there was clear and convincing evidence that they died in the towers. Sneha was one of them. That meant that Ron and her family would have to do more to prove that Sneha actually died on 9-11. That's where Mark came in. I was hired by uh, Ron Lieberman, who had been the uh, husband of Sneha and Philip. His job was to convince the surrogate judge that... That the absentee is not just absent, but is deceased. But it didn't go Mark's way. Well, they found that Sneha was dead. But they said, no, we didn't establish that she died at the Trade Center. So they said, yeah, she's dead, but we don't put her at the Trade Center. Once again, the judge decided there wasn't enough evidence to accept that she died in the towers. And so the judge set the date of Sneha's death to September 10th, 2004, three years to the day after she went missing. That's common legal practice with missing persons cases. And by this point, the time the judge made that decision, it was already 2006. The window to apply for the first victim's compensation fund had long since closed. In court documents, the judge, Renee Roth, justified her ruling by pointing at some things in what she called Sneha's lifestyle. Sneha drank, she went out to lesbian bars, she and her husband sometimes spent nights apart. And Judge Roth wrote that all of that is what must have led to her death, or could have done so as easily as anything else. I was, like, flabbergasted. We tried to talk to Roth to understand how she reached that decision and how she and the staff at the surrogate court processed all those thousands of cases in the mass proceeding. She wasn't interested. She told us over email that her written decisions spoke for themselves. In any case... That's where Roth rested on Sneha, that her lifestyle was dangerous and could have gotten her killed. So that's the difficulty. Courts want as much proof as they can possibly get. Even a bit of ambiguity or an alternate explanation could keep someone from being recognized as a victim. Ron and Mark decided to appeal that ruling. Two years later, in 2008, they won. The judge in that case wrote, the evidence shows it to be highly probable that she died that morning and at that site, whereas only the rankest speculation leads to any other conclusion. The appeals court set Sneha's death to September 11th. The family was able to get a death certificate listing the cause of death as a terror attack. Finally, her family had the same chance for closure that Juan's family got. And now, she's on the memorial. Her name with her first name abbreviated to the pet name her family used for her, is read out loud every year on the anniversary of 9-11. Kevin J. Pfeiffer. Snay Ann Phillip. Kenneth John Phelan Sr. But what about cases where the family could hardly convince a court their loved ones had ever existed in the first place? That was the case with the last person in our story. The other person Josh Roth mentioned by name besides Sneha. The other case that had, as Roth wrote, the ring of truth, but not enough evidence. That second name was Fernando Jimenez Moliner. That's 
Joel Magallan's list of 900 missing people eventually came down to 67 names. Fernando Molinar was one of them. Joel's office is a small, cramped room near Times Square on West 38th Street. The office is on the second floor, and once you go in, you can see three desks lined up in a row in front of a wall filled up with framed newspaper clippings detailing the organization's accomplishments, including a few from the New York Times. Joel was late for our interview. We both sat there wondering if we were going to have a chance to speak with him, or if he'd change his mind. After 20 minutes, we see a man with gray hair and a serious expression on his face. It's Joel. We introduce ourselves. <laughs> and he leads us to the back of the room, where a rectangular table takes over much of the space. We are surrounded by lots of boxes and a huge, shiny portrait of the Virgin of Guadalupe. She's hard to miss. For Asociación Tepeyac, she symbolizes the mission of the organization, to be a safe haven for immigrants in the city. The name of the organization itself is also symbolic. Tepeyac is a region in Mexico with a special meaning. Tepeyac was the place where the indigenous ancestors of Mexico felt like owners of their own land, once again recognized as human beings. Joel came to the U.S. in 1997 from Mexico. He holds a serious expression the entire time we talk to him. But his voice is soft, as he remembers the towers falling to the ground. The smoke reached all the way to Asociación de Peyac. He takes us back to that day, when he and volunteers took on the task of answering thousands of calls from families in Mexico, looking for their missing loved ones. I told them, well, everyone, let's answer calls. September 11 was like that, of receiving information, writing down information, and not knowing what we were going to do. The next day, three young men walk into Joel's office. They came in to tell us that his roommate had not come back home. He had not slept in the apartment. The young men tell Joel that their roommate was named Fernando Molinar, that he was a pizza delivery man who worked near the World Trade Center, and that he hadn't been home since the attack. We asked them to leave a phone number, and they told us, no, we will return I remember insisting. They said, everyone that lives in the apartment doesn't have papers. We do not want any investigation. We don't want anyone to go see us or to know anything about us. That was the first and last time Joel saw them. A week later, he gets a call from Nora Elsa Molina. She lives in Oaxaca, Mexico, and she's looking for her son, Fernando. Nora tells Joel that on the morning of the attacks, she was waiting for a weekly phone call from her son. But he never called. And he didn't call the next day or the day after that. After Nora sees the towers fall on TV, in desperation, she goes to the Office of External Affairs in Oaxaca. That's the office that oversees Mexico's foreign embassies and consulates, hoping they can find a way to help her contact him. She knows her son worked near the towers. He often told her about going up to the towers to deliver pizza, so she fears her son was there during the attacks. But staff at the office tell her she's lying, lying in order to get money from charity and relief organizations. 
When she leaves the building crying, a tourist from New York notices her. She gives Nora the number for Asociación de Bellac. Nora immediately calls them and is able to speak with Joel. Joel remembers her saying, I went to the Secretary of External Relations, the office in Mexico here in Oaxaca, and they mistreated me. They asked me what I wanted, and that if I wanted money, that it was all a lie. She tells him that her son had arrived to the U.S. as an undocumented immigrant when he was 16 years old. The only photo his mom had of him was of when he was 14. Since then, he had changed a lot. He was now 22. Still, Joel gives the case to one of his volunteers. He remembers telling them, I assigned this case to you as a mission impossible. Como misión imposible. The volunteer went around to different pizza places near the World Trade Center, asking if anyone could confirm whether Fernando had worked there. Employers looked at the photo of 14-year-old Fernando, with his chubby hair and his childlike face, and told them that they did not employ children. It was a dead end. But Joel didn't give up just yet. And he wasn't the only one looking for Fernando or the other immigrant workers who were reported missing. The Consulate of Mexico in New York had come up with their own list, which they had compiled through their own outreach to the Mexican community in the city. They had 16 names in their list. Things were tricky for the consulate, though. On the one hand, people were desperate for help. But on the other, they were afraid. They didn't want anyone to discover they were undocumented, and not everyone trusted the Mexican government. We should say as well, the consulate and Joel carefully vetted people who came to them, saying they lost a loved one in the attack. The consulate was extremely confident in its list of 16 people. Consular staff took on the job of communicating with family members back in Mexico, writing down any information they could about the missing. But that was complicated, because back in Mexico, families weren't sure if their loved ones even lived in New York, and some hadn't spoken to them in years. For the most part, those families would never get answers. Of the consulate's list, only five names would end up in the official 9-11 death count. Fernando was one of the people left out. Joel Magallan tells us that he invited Nora Elsa Molina to New York every year. He remembers she would always say, I don't want money. I don't want any kind of help. The only thing I want is an item. If anyone has a shirt, something my son had left, a picture or something, I want to have a memory of my son. She eventually stopped coming. Joel says he hasn't spoken to her in many years. We couldn't find her for this story. In 2011, though, the Mexican consulate organized their own ceremony in honor of Mexican victims. They read out 16 names including Fernando's. They had organized a small ceremony in a waiting room. It's not a very big space. That's Alexandra Delano Alonso, a professor at the New School, a small university in downtown Manhattan. Among other things, she studies migration and the U.S.-Mexico border. There were black plastic chairs laid out for people to sit in front of a Mexican flag that was found among the remains of the World Trade Center. And some of the family members spoke. It was a it was a somber 
ceremony, but it also felt like a very important moment where where people were gathering to commemorate the the victims of 9-11 and particularly the Mexican victims with a deep awareness that maybe there were many who could not be there. But then I um, compared that list of 16 names with the list of Mexican victims that are on the 9-11 memorial, and only five of those names were on the memorial. Naturally, that made Alexandra wonder. If the Mexican consulate is honoring 16 victims, why are there only five Mexican names on the official memorial? That question led Alexander to a colleague. I am Benjamin Ninas, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Political Science and Law at Montclair State University. He studies memory, not the brain science of it, but the big issues about how communities choose to remember the past. Yes, Alejandro approached me with this question or this finding, and so the two of us began began to look into it together, basically through a framework of, of the politics of memory. This was totally in Ben's wheelhouse. It immediately intrigued me to to basically look into this together with, with Alejandro because we, we came at it from slightly different angles and, and different disciplines. Armed with their expertise, they dug into the question of why some Mexican names didn't make it onto the memorial. Months later, they published their research as an academic paper. The title was Invisible Victims, Undocumented Migrants in the Aftermath of September 11th. Based on that title and what you've heard about Howell's work, their findings probably won't surprise you too much. They found that a number of victims, at least 10, but maybe as many as a few dozen, weren't included on the official list of 9-11 victims because they were undocumented. And on the surface, the reasons they didn't get counted seem pretty straightforward. You see, the first thing the government looked at for recognizing victims was records of who worked at the towers. Naturally, not many undocumented immigrants appear on pay sheets. And when they do, it's usually not their real names. They would have forged identification cards or have been using a Uh, borrowed social security number if they had had any identification at all. There was also the complicating factor that many of the families themselves were undocumented. And that also meant they lived with this constant fear. Fear that any encounter with a public institution could lead to an encounter with the police or with immigration authorities that could lead to deportation, detention, family separation. And that, in turn, made them less likely to talk to relief workers, even sympathetic ones. Remember what Fernando's roommates told Joel, that they were afraid about going to the authorities? One of the things that Alexandra and Ben found, though, is that the authorities were aware of the challenges facing migrant families as they tried to get their loved ones recognized. Generally speaking, both on the city, state, and federal government level, offices were actually pretty open of acknowledging how hard it was for undocumented workers and undocumented migrants to fulfill those conditions. But that didn't necessarily translate into uh, easing any of these conditions of establishing your identity. When uh, bodies couldn't be found, DNA matches couldn't be established, uh, when it was so clear that a death certificate was often impossible to, to get for some of the undocumented workers. Why, why not um, be a little, more, uh, a little more flexible when it comes to that? Ben wonders, if you couldn't do that for the compensation fund, then why not at least for the memorial? Why would 
the memorial necessarily have to apply similarly stringent logics of evidence. And Alexander's been wondering about that too, ever since the ceremony she went to at the consulate 11 years ago. They read out loud these names of 16 victims and the consul very emphatically said, and many others that we may not know of. And for me, that, that, that made sense. It was, a, it was clear that we wouldn't know, that we could never know. The National 9-11 Memorial has a precise number of names carved in bronze. There's no inscription that says, and others, or the unknown. We reached out to the memorial with questions about those design choices and about how they determined which names would be included. This is what they told us. Prior to its opening in 2011, on the 10th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, the National September 11 Memorial and Museum underwent a multi-year process to verify and arrange the names that would be inscribed into the memorial's bronze parapets. But Ben thinks that in the end, Undocumented workers were made doubly absent, if you will, right? Once during their lives and then once in the memorial. Ben says that just as the state failed to recognize their existence, it failed to recognize their deaths. Remember, there was hope in the days just before 9-11 that some kind of immigration reform could actually happen. But after 9-11... This government is taking unprecedented measures to protect our people and defend our homeland. We've intensified security at the borders and ports of entry. The U.S. government had new priorities. The Homeland Security Act of 2002 takes the next critical steps in defending our country. Vowing to never let a tragedy like 9-11 happen again the U.S. government created the Department of Homeland Security and ICE, the Immigration Enforcement Agency. We have a responsibility to secure our borders. We take this responsibility seriously. The focus turned to protecting and locking down America's borders. And so that hope for immigration reform ended after 9-11. My mom remembers it. And later in the first months, I think there was silence from the government. They never talked about it again, as if they had never talked about immigration reform before. And as for Joel, the march he spent so much time organizing never happened. I told myself from the beginning, I'm going to stay in New York until we get immigration reform, because I always had hope. Now, I don't have the hope that I will ever get immigration reform. Shoe Leather is a production of the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. This episode was reported, written, and produced by me, Maria Fernanda Rives. And me, Luke Cregan. Joanne Farian is our executive producer and professor. Rachel Quester and Peter Leonard are our co-professors. Special thanks to Columbia Digital Librarian Michelle Wilson, Professor Dale Maharaj, John Walzak, Mark Desire, Hugo Kugia, Kenneth Feinberg, Camille Byros, Judge David Sachs, Kenneth Womack, Kim Sulik, Julie Balser, Grant Kinsel, and Jack Talty. Shoe Leather's theme music, Squeakies, is by Ben Lewis. Darren Zunis, 
and Camille Miller. Remixed by Peter Leonard. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our season three graphic was created by me, Maria Fernanda Rives. To learn more about shoe leather and this episode, go to our website, shoeleather.org.